I've never done one where it's like two in a row. Like I've ran a few half marathons, I've ran 10Ks. Um, am I gonna make a costume? Yes, the answer is yes. Two costumes. Because you'll, you're gonna sweat. Oh shit, yeah, two costumes. So if you wear it on the first day, you're gonna wear and wear it on the second day? Welcome to the Asian Sewist Collective podcast. The Asian Sewist Collective is a group of Asian people from around the world brought together by our shared appreciation for fiber and textile arts and our desire to see more Asian representation in the sewing community. In this podcast, we explore the intersection of our identities and our shared sewing practice as we create a space for Asian sewists and our allies. I'm your co-host, Ada Chen, and I'm recording from Denver, Colorado. Denver is the traditional territory of the Ute, Cheyenne, and Arapaho peoples. I'm a Taiwanese-American marketer turned entrepreneur, and these days you'll find me running my all-natural skincare business called Chuan's Promise. That's C-H-U-A-N apostrophe S, Promise, in sharing my marketing tips on my blog. Most importantly for this podcast, you can find my sewing at i.hope.so on Instagram. And I'm your co-host, Nicole. I'm based outside of Chicago, the original homelands of the Council of the Three Fires, the Ojibwe, the Potawatomi, and the Odawa people. I'm a Philippine-American woman, a lawyer by day and a sewing enthusiast the rest of the time. You can find me on Instagram at Nicole Angeline Sews. Before we dive into this week's episode, Nicole, can you tell us about your current sewing project? Yes, I can. And depending on when this episode airs, um, maybe it airs in May, maybe it doesn't. But in the United States, May is Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. And I wanted to do something for May for uh, people of with designs from people of Asian descent designers. So I picked the Stay Stitch Soline Culottes. So Stay Stitch Pet is a pattern company. One of the co-founders, Candice, appears to be of Asian descent. Um, she doesn't really discuss her background, but I see some of the stuff that she like supports and comments on. And she is a Pacific Northwest, a sewist from the Pacific Northwest. And so I went with their culottes. I, I do love Stay Stitch patterns. I find them to be very beginner-friendly, simple, clean designs. Another contender for like the bottom half of the two-piece that I wanted to make was um, Angelica Creates Basic Stitch Patterns. So she was a our first ever guest, actually, on the podcast back in season one. Um, she has this really great wrap skirt that she just um, released, re-released for extended sizing. But I wanted to do the pants because I have some travel coming up in May and June. And culottes just seem like a good thing for Spain, maybe, maybe. But uh, for the two-piece, I wanted to have a, for the top, I actually did the top half of the Lena Horn dress from Ooh. Tabitha Sower. Tabitha Sower is a sewist and designer of Black and Filipino descent. And she has her own patterns, her own button line. She does home improvement projects and upcycling and all that. So the full dress is a fitted bodice with ruffled straps. And then a gathered mini or midi skirt. So I just did the bodice on its own. So it's like a crop top. Um, I had a hard time figuring out just like the zipper. I think it was just me and my brain wasn't working, but it um, it actually looks really cute. Like the top and the the culottes together. Um, I was going to do like a t-shirt, <laughs> like a simple <laughs> linen tee. Like it's really nice um, yarn dyed linen from Fabric Mart. But I was like, nah, we'll just do something fun and fancy for the top. So that's that's what I am working on. Anything special happening with you? 
I wish I'd thought of that idea, but maybe I will at the time of this recording still have time to make something for um, the month of May. But I am currently working on more practical shows, I guess, because May and June are kind of like the start of the upswing of golf season. And I've started to get really into it, I guess. Was um, that pun intended? No, actually, it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> now they bring the conversation up. to a screeching halt <laughs> and ask if, you, if that pun was intended. <laughs> I, yeah, I haven't, I haven't really realized how many golf puns there are. But I um, am trying to enter into my first amateur tournament. I'm not very, I'm not amazing, but I do think I'm like competent enough and confident enough in my skills now where I would be able to hold up. So I'm trying to enter into that. And so I need some more outfits because I'm going out more. And by the dress codes of many of these places, which are rooted in the patriarchy, you can't wear leggings, Mm -hmm. which I just think is patently dumb. And if you want to wear pants or shorts, they kind of have to be the like athletic, but still looks country club vibe, which just, I don't like it and I don't want to wear it or make it. So instead I'm making skorts because I like athletic shorts and a skort is basically that with some fake or real skirt edge over it. (laughs) So I made this pattern last year um, in twice, the Jay Lee skort, uh, multi-sport running skort. It's the number is 2796. I think I talked about it before. I've just found that it like it's held up really well. It's worn really well. So I cut it out of some remnant fabric that I picked up at one of the creative reuse centers here. And they were doing sporty knits, like rolls of sporty knits that were under a yard for a dollar. And so why not mix and match some of those to make some like different colored skorts that will be completely unique to me and have pockets for all the uh, balls and tees and things that you need to have when you're walking around. Because again, those, the pants and shorts options like are not great with the pockets either. Like, yeah, just they're women's ready to wear pockets, you know, they're tiny. <laughs> yeah. So two, two things. So I had to put you on the spot, but are these, is this the pattern where you sewed the shorts in sideways? Yes. And then I had to seam rip them out and do it again. <laughs> I, like, I, I actually, remember this. <laughs> I re- so I had, I made two skort patterns. If you recall last year, one was this one and one was a big four one and the big four one, as we can all imagine, uh, the sizing was just off. Mm-hmm. And so I needed to recut that one and do all this stuff. And so I was like, why would I spend more time trying to make this pattern fit when I already have made one that I do know fits yeah. and that I like a little bit better? Plus the big four one doesn't have pockets, which is a pain in the butt. Makes no sense. But yes, I'm sorry that that's how I remember the skirt. <laughs> that you said you sewed it in sideways. Don't worry. I know how to find the sides in the front now. <laughs> <laughs> so when you become a touring a golfer, can I come and watch you and clap very politely when you do amazing things? <laughs> Isn't that what happens? I know nothing about golf. All I know is that like, I'm not going to clap into the microphone, but for people on YouTube, and see me clapping or do you want me yeah. to like go wild because I'm going to support you and these things what I do want to say and point out is that golf is one of the only sports I see internationally where Asian women dominate yeah like eight out of the top 10 are Asian women predominantly right now East Asian there's a heavy Southeast Asian group though that's like coming up that's like younger I'm talking like teenagers to early 20s so women on the tour, I'm like every time I get to watch those videos, I'm like, women on the tour look like me. And it like does give me a little bit of a boost because I think the closest that, you know, a lot of us would have had growing up with, you know, anybody in our family who golfed 
Um, for me, it was my dad. It was it was Tiger Woods, who his mom is Thai, I believe. But like in a very famous Oprah interview, he said he was he didn't see himself as black or Asian, or I think he's like also a mix of white. He called himself like Cablasian, or it was weird. Go listeners, go back and listen to that because mm-hmm. it's it's all sorts of like he doesn't know what his own identity is and all sorts Aww. of stuff. But I think the sport has definitely it's definitely still exclusionary and inaccessible for many people. But for me, it's like really motivating to see that there is a sport that I could reasonably be good at at this point in my life and physical health. And there are people that look like me who are just like dominating it. Love that. Love that. Welcome back to another episode of the Asian Sewist Collective podcast. Today, we're looking at the intersectionality of gender nonconformity and sewing. But before we dive in, we want to start off with a disclaimer. We are not experts when it comes to gender nonconformity. We, your hosts, Ada and I, uh, the researcher and the producer for this episode, are all cisgender. That is, our assigned sex is aligned with our gender identity. We'll explain more about what that means in a second. And we recognize that the majority of the collective is cisgender and want to emphasize that we are welcoming of all genders and those who are agender. Uh, there will be two guests in this episode who identify as gender nonconforming and will be sharing their experiences with us. But I also want to highlight that, quote, gender nonconforming is a very vast term, and our guests are not fully representative of all folks who fall under this umbrella. We have tried our best in our research for this episode to give you as much accurate information as we can. So we'll also highlight some key educators worth following if you'd like to learn more. And gender non-conforming folks are not a monolith, just like how Asian people are not a monolith. And one gender non-conforming person can't speak on behalf of all. So we definitely invite you to do your own research and study outside of listening to today's episode, especially since we just don't have enough time today to define and explain all of the relevant topics and keywords. With that disclaimer out of the way, let's jump right into it. When we're talking about gender non-conforming folks, we are referring to people who do not follow other people's ideas or stereotypes about how they should look or act based on their sex. It's an umbrella term that encompasses folks who are transgender, genderqueer, non-binary, two-spirit, and more. The word sex in this context is sometimes referred to as biological sex or assigned sex. It is a label that you are given at birth based on many medical factors, including but not limited to your hormones, chromosomes, and genitalia. Most people are assigned AFAB or AMAB. These are commonly used abbreviations for assigned female at birth and assigned male at birth, respectively. Some resources we found claim that biological sex is a contentious term because someone else, usually a doctor, is making a decision on what your sex is for you at the time of your birth. Boxing one's biological or assigned sex as strictly male or female isn't that simple. And there's a great video by Dr. Karen Tang, a doctor who promotes reproductive health and education. In that video, she talks about a genetic condition called 5-alpha reductase deficiency that can result in an individual being born genetically male with female sexual characteristics, but then goes on to develop male sexual characteristics in puberty. So per science journals and other reputable medical resources online, genetically male means that the individual has XY chromosomes 
and male gonads or testes. Dr. Tang has come across my TikTok for you page a bunch, and I love her videos. She's doing a lot of good work to educate folks across her platforms on TikTok and YouTube, which I highly recommend you check out. There will be links in the show notes. And especially if you've seen some of the headlines in the last few years from politicians and public figures who quite honestly don't know what they're talking about and conflate a a lot of topics, Dr. Tang does a good job of untangling it all and explaining it in a way that non-scientists and doctors like me and likely you can understand and relate to. So back to today's topic, sex does not determine one's gender identity. Gender identity is how people see and identify themselves. For many of us, thanks to colonialism dictating what we consider to be a societal norm and what we grow up with, we consider our gender identity to be aligned with our assigned sex. So we are therefore cisgender, a man or a woman. I could go on a whole rant here about how for some people that concept is really so ingrained that they feel compelled to push it onto others, a la TERFs and conservative politicians here in the U.S., but we will try to keep this brief. We do need to clarify what the term TERF means. So T-E-R-F is an acronym and it stands for Trans Exclusionary Radical Feminist. Historically, they've promoted violence against trans women who dare to exist in women's and lesbian spaces. They believe that anyone born with a vagina is in its own oppressed class and anyone born with a penis is automatically an oppressor. Now, TERF ideology has become the de facto face of feminism in the United Kingdom with the help of the media, which if you followed the UK media scene anytime in the last 30 years, you know that it can be a pretty toxic place. It's a toxic mix of historical imperialism and a broader movement in the UK in the 2000s was hyper-focused on debunking so-called junk science. This led to the prevalence of turf ideology today. Now, supporters think they have science on their side when they shit on trans and gender non-conforming folks. And in an insidious way, more diluted forms of turf ideology are perpetuated when, quote, women-focused spaces and programs exclude trans and gender non-conforming folks, which we have seen not only in the UK, but of course in the United States and Canada as well. There's a Vox article that's linked in our show notes that dives deeper into this phenomenon, and we highly recommend you take a look at it after listening to this episode. It's definitely a good read. Thanks, Nicole. I will also note that the most well-known example of TERFism or a TERF is J.K. Rowling. In fact, if you Google the word TERF, her Twitter is one of the very first results that come up. I've literally never heard the term until I heard it being associated with J.K. Rowling. Yeah, I mean, that that happened for a lot of people, right? And it's been discussed quite a lot in the past few years within the Harry Potter fandom, but also outside of it, given the contrast between the author's views and the seemingly open and welcoming environment created in the Harry Potter world. Like the whole theme of Harry Potter is that being different is something to be celebrated and it's okay. And yet uh, the author herself spouts a lot of hatred on Twitter, which just sucks. And I know for a lot of people, it was like really disappointing. And then you have politicians in the U.S. like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who stupidly put up signs that say there are two genders, male and female, trust the science, or, quote, women are the weaker sex. Not only do these signs and her just espousals of stuff set feminism back, but they just erase anybody who is gender nonconforming. She just refuses to acknowledge they exist. Right. And I know Harry Potter and the story around it resonated really deeply with a lot of folks who felt like misfits, including so many children who knew deep down that 
they didn't fit into society's idea of gender. So I can't even imagine or begin to express how J.K. Rowling's rejection of gender nonconforming folks must feel for them. Like disappointing is the least of what what the, they might have they should they are going through rather. And I'm going to throw out a few more keywords before we move on. Uh, folks whose gender identity differs from the sex they were assigned at birth are considered transgender, often shortened to trans. And it's important to note that all trans folks are gender nonconforming, but not all gender nonconforming folks consider themselves trans. Note that gender is not set in stone and one's gender identity may change over time under a concept called gender fluidity. Because of this, some folks identify as gender fluid, meaning the gender or lack thereof they identify with is not fixed. Their gender can change over time or even how they feel when they get up in the morning. And non-binary is an umbrella term for people whose gender identity does not fit neatly into what is considered male or female. The concept of male or female, so two options there, is sometimes referred to as the gender binary, but we want to make it clear that there's obviously more than two genders. Some folks have a gender that blends elements from both male and female, and others don't identify with being either. You'll also hear the following terms thrown around for many folks whose gender is neither male or female, such as gender queer, agender, bigender, and so on. These terms are not interchangeable, but they all speak to a gender identity that doesn't just fit into the binary norm, basically a gender that's not simply male or female. And lastly, I know I've said this already, but I'm going to go ahead and say it again for emphasis. Sex does not determine one's gender identity. And I also want to add that sex and gender are, quote, distinct from your presentation and does not determine your orientation, end quote. And that quote is from an Instagram post from the ever resourceful Emilia of Emilia Tonuno, which is Emilia underscore T-O underscore N-E-U-N-O. A link to their post is in our show notes. Gender presentation or expression refers to the appearance, body language, and general behavior by which a person expresses their gender. Due to most of society's modern colonialist conditioning, this manifests itself in ways like, oh, that person is wearing a dress, so they are a woman. Or so-and-so is gruff and has a deep voice, so that means that person is a man. And this isn't, isn't right, this isn't quite right, and we should remind ourselves that one's sex and gender identity may have nothing to do with the way one chooses to present themselves. Right, and that's an important point that you make there, Nicole, because many of us grow up in colonialist environments, and these things are basically taught to us and ingrained in us from the time we're born. And it's it takes work to untangle and unlearn these associations. So sexual orientation refers to who you are attracted to physically and or romantically. And again, orientation has nothing to do with assigned sex, gender identity, or one's presentation, a person who wears makeup isn't necessarily a woman and isn't necessarily straight. A trans man can be gay and prefer to date other men or a cisgender person can be asexual. When an individual is asexual, they do not experience sexual attraction towards individuals of any gender. It's different from celibacy since the latter term is the choice to refrain from engaging in sexual behaviors and doesn't comment on one's actual sexual attractions. Interesting. I really distinctly remember learning about the difference between gender and sex and sexual orientation at some point in my public school upbringing. And 
it's always been a no-brainer to me that these are different concepts and they 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 exist separately but with uh, separately as concepts but you know within the same person they can all be different it's kind of surprising i i'm so, so surprised myself sometimes that i that i knew about this because i grew up in like a suburban predominantly white and not a particularly socially progressive area so the nuances that were some of the nuances we're talking about today like sex and presentation are newer to me but it's somewhat remarkable that I remember learning about it in school, giving like my public school health class failings, like other other failings, like abstinence and, and abortions. But whenever I think about that, I think why when people have difficulty parsing out the separate concepts, I think, but I swear I learned this when I was a kid. <laughs> like I, I'm pretty sure I did. Um, but it may be failings of other educational institutions as well. I mean, I don't know. I went to public school too. Like I'm a product of the New Jersey public school system. I didn't learn this in school, despite the other failings in our health classes. Like let's just admit that public school health classes right now are are pretty bad um, and <laughs> pretty lacking. But I went to high school in a predominantly white suburban university town and super liberal town and we never talked about this. Like our, our high school even had a GSA club, which is the Gay Straight Alliance Club, um, which I don't know if it's still called that. It seems like a little bit of a dated term, but I remember that being a club, but this never coming up in any discussions in any class. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. I think, I think, however, the circumstance I learned it under must have been anomalous, um, but because I know that people don't talk about this. I think that's important for us to talk about gender non-conforming folks, because it's important to understand our fellow people uh, as best as we can. But now that we've gotten those definitions out of the way, some of you may be wondering, you know, why we're talking about gender non-conformity on a sewing podcast. Well, there's quite a bit to unpack with regard to this intersection, but I want to say that, you know, a reminder, each gender non-conforming individual is a unique individual. So their break point into sewing, you know, could be really different than, than what I'm about to, to say. But uh, many gender non-conforming folks reclaim their pride through sewing. So others use sewing as a vehicle to take back ownership and power of their identity. Traditionally gendered ready-to-wear garments may not fit their body, for instance. A shirt without darts might not fit well on someone who was assigned female at birth. So instead, they may choose to tailor an existing pattern to make a one-of-a-kind garment that empowers and affirms their gender identity. And the problem with ready-to-wear is that most designs construct their clothing around the gendered idea of a body. That is, quote, women's wear is designed for women who are expected to be hourglass shaped, where their waist is smaller than their chest and their hips. Or, quote, men's wear is designed for men who are expected to be shaped like a martini glass, wider up top and narrower at the waist and bottom. Now, most of the time, these garments fail to accommodate the vast spectrum of body types that exist, least of all gender non-conforming folks. So even ready-to-wear garments that can accommodate a vast ranges of sizes are usually designed using pattern blocks for cisgender bodies, leaving everyone else behind. Then there's often a gap in the clothing market that only sewing can close. So for the longest time, period panties were always in very quote-unquote feminine shapes. But not all people who menstruate are women. Boxer-cut period panties took a while to make it to the ready-to-wear market. And some folks also choose to challenge the binary norm through their sewing. An example of what might look like it's adding feminine, again in quotes, touches to a traditionally masculine collared shirt or truly precise tailoring to achieve fantastic fitting trousers reminiscent of 
vintage menswear, a la Amelia of Amelia Tonuno. And this is a bit of a segue, but I wanted to also speak to pattern designers supposedly challenging the binary norm. So, so far, I guess over the past handful of years, we've seen a growing number of pattern designers releasing gender neutral or gender expansive sewing patterns out there, which is definitely a step in the right direction, but there is still a lot of work to be done. For starters, these patterns are often listed as, quote, unisex, which is problematic as many folks identify as agender, as in they identify with having no gender. And it's a subtle but definite difference. Then these patterns often only consider straight garment shapes as benefiting to all bodies. And lastly, we're not really seeing enough gender non-conforming models and clothes to fight against the binary norm. And sure, we'll see people who present traditionally as, quote, masculine or feminine modeling gender expansive garments on pattern websites, but like, why not someone who is AMAB in a dress, for example? Right. And I do feel like patterns, those many patterns that are consider themselves gender expansive, they generally cater to straight silhouettes. But why does degendering a pattern mean removing all semblance of curves? Like gender doesn't have a correlation with the curves that exist on one's body. So as you say, Ada, wouldn't being truly gender expansive mean creating a space for a person who is AMAB, so assigned male at birth, to be comfortable with or to celebrate wearing a dress as much as someone who is AFAB, assigned female at birth, um, you know, without changing the shape of the garment itself. So moving on to the topic of, you know, gender nonconformity, being a sewist, and also being of Asian descent, we wanted to do a deep dive on this intersection in this episode, but we found very few resources on gender nonconforming Asians. Asian people in Western countries who are gender nonconforming are vastly underrepresented. In fact, any info out there is usually porn or just contains racist stereotypes, claims Mia Nakano. Uh, Mia Nakano is a fourth-generation Japanese-American queer woman who was the key driving force behind a photo documentation series called The Visibility Project. The Visibility Project documents the personal experiences of AAPI queer and transgender folks through visual art and personal narratives. Some sources claim that the model minority myth and colonialism have pretty much erased trans or gender nonconforming Asian folks from history, which may be why we found so little information of this topic online. As a recap, the model minority myth claims that Asians are economically stable, upwardly mobile, and have easy access to resources. Supposedly. I know we're not here to argue against the myth again, but here are some slightly outdated but still relevant statistics that make this myth total bullshit. AAPI transgender people had an unemployment rate of 12% in 2012, while the general population's rate was about 7% at that point. And AAPI transgender people often live in extreme poverty. 18% report a household income of less than $10,000 a year. And this is higher than the rate for transgender people across all races, which is 15%. And it's six times the rate for the general AAPI population, or four times the rate of the general U.S. population. And AAPI transgender and gender nonconforming folks are significant and too often marginalized part of both the AAPI and LGBTQ plus communities. Within some Asian cultures, gender that exists beyond the binary has been long recognized. There are spaces within cultural communities for people who do not identify as male or female to exist. For instance, there are Hydra communities in Bangladesh and India who consider themselves a third gender. 
They are usually assigned male at birth, but have a feminine gender identity and adopt feminine gender roles. They are often mislabeled as transgender or by terms that carry a negative connotation, which we're not going to go into today. But in 2014, the Supreme Court of India ruled that hedras are recognized on official documents under a separate third gender category. The hedras seem to share similarities with the metis, M-E-T-I-S. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. We couldn't find a pronunciation guide online, um, but they're from Nepal. And it's an indigenous term for a third gender. A meti is usually assigned male at birth, so AMAB, but present in what we would conventionally consider feminine. They consider themselves as having a third gender and are interested in straight men. They've also been part of Nepalese culture throughout history. And a Supreme Court ruling in 2007 enabled Metis to be recorded officially as having a third gender marked as the letter O for other. There are also many more examples of third genders in Asian cultures. It's obvious that the concept of a binary gender is new to many Asian heritages and forced on us by colonizers. There is also a PBS link in our show notes if you want to read more about cultures that have always recognized, referred, and integrated more than two genders. Spoiler alert, there are these cultures on almost every continent, so definitely, definitely check out that link. So there's also a recognition of gender nonconformity and genders outside of the gender binary, I think, you know, prevalent in some Asian languages. So this got me thinking, you know, producer Mariko was asking about, like, Tagalog, and Tagalog is a language in the Philippines, one of over a hundred different types of languages. But Tagalog itself does have gender neutral elements to it, maybe more than compared to other languages. So for example, the third person pronoun xia, which is spelled S-I-Y-A, is used for he, she, or even it. And some nouns are also genderless, but they tend to be the nouns that don't appear to have been adopted from Spanish. So there was this very long colonization period um, that the Spanish came and colonized uh, the Philippines. And one of the words that is not of Spanish root is asawa. So A-S-A-W-A. And it just means spouse. There isn't a word for husband or wife. It's just spouse. But, you know, also Tagalog speakers will then tack on the words lalake or babae, which means male or female, to a particular noun. So some examples of that are anak na lalake. So anak means child. So there's no word for son. But so if you want to talk about your male child, you would say anak na lalake. Or uh, the example here is babaeng kabing, which is, just, you know, a female goat. Uh, kabing is goat. So there's some nuances there. But when you start to think about the words that have a lot more Spanish influence from that colonization period, there tends to be a lot more gendering of the languages. So uh, using the suffixes a and o to signify, you know, a feminine and a masculine, respectively. So most of these words refer to ethnicities, occupations, families. So like you have your Filipino and your Filipina. Um, you have your the tindero or tindera, which is, you know, male shopkeeper, um, you know, female shopkeeper. And I was racking my brain and all of the gendered words I could think of, keeping in mind that I'm not like a fluent speaker at all, um, they were all used to describe people. All the gendered words were described were to describe people, which I think is really interesting when you think about language. In the Asian languages that I speak or I know a bit of and studied, there are definitely some cultural norms embedded that make gender neutrality difficult, right? Like in Chinese and Korean, for example, when you call someone 
onto your uncle or basically you refer to them in a familial term. The word you use depends on their gender and their age in relation to other folks in the family. Even and even like you have to consider if they're married into the family or like biologically, I guess, in the family. And so I know at least for Chinese, this gets so complex that someone created a calculator online. Thank you to producer Mariko for finding this. This calculator is called Sanku Liopo, which literally translates to three aunts and six mothers-in-laws or grandmas, but it's also an idiom that refers to, quote, women of disreputable professions. I found that out in the dictionary. I did not know that idiom. Okay. And basically, you can enter details about a family member to compute the word to call them by and refer that to them with, which, you know, in my experience and in my opinion, would have been real handy when I was studying all of these words and honorifics because I have a very large extended family. And you'll notice that the words on the calculator buttons on this tool are all gendered. And even how you refer to your cousin, for example, depends on which side of the family you're on versus them and their gender and age in relation to yours. So there's like eight different combinations that all mean cousin and they can all get confusing if you, like I said, have a large extended family and have all these different cousins. And so then um, according to Mariko, who is half Japanese, (laughs) Japanese is also a language that is also heavily steeped in the gender binary. There are certain words or ways of speaking that are strictly used by men or women. And there are instances of women, you know, supposedly speaking like men and vice versa, but it isn't a societal norm and the vocabulary itself is still gendered, even if it's switched. So I think it's interesting to take a look at the way that different Asian societies view gender binary and uh, gender nonconformity through the language that they use. And it's a bit of a, a tangent there, but it's a useful way to understand how it's viewed uh, within those cultures. But let's go ahead and direct it back to gender nonconformity and sewing, because it's a sewing podcast. <laughs> but um, before our guests come on today, I want to touch upon how sewists, pattern makers, and the sewing community can better include gender nonconforming sewists. You may have heard of some of these tips before, uh, while others may be new to you, or you may have noticed some of these changes, but haven't really understood why they're happening. So a common theme we saw across the board is mindfulness around the language that we use in the sewing community. So it's evident that a lot of assumptions are made about the sewing community when it comes to how we communicate with each other. Greeting each other by a hello ladies, for instance, can be extremely exclusionary and could be triggering for certain folks. So when pattern designers describe menswear as some, as, you know, quote, something women can sew for the men in their lives, like, I mean, it's not only exclusionary, it's like, super misogynist to say that, Um, you know, this assumes the only people making the patterns are cisgender women who are straight. And another example of exclusionary language is when the binary norm is used to describe garments and parts of garments like boyfriend cut jeans and princess seams. And sewists and pattern designers can make a huge difference by taking care to use inclusive language with other sewists. And actually, you can make a really big difference by doing this absolutely everywhere, not just in the sewing world. Gender nonconforming friends and strangers will thank you. I'm hearing a lot of parallels to some of the terms we pointed out that were problematic in the cultural appropriation episodes. So some alternatives to hello ladies or hey guys that I learned from a friend are hey y'all or hi folks. And I am not from the American South where these phrases are more prevalent and it took a lot of getting used to, but now 
that I'm a few years into learning these phrases and consciously changing my vocabulary, they come out pretty naturally to me. And there are times where I slip up too, but I genuinely do believe that anyone can make this small change in their vocab to help people feel more included in their spaces. And this small change, similar to asking for someone's pronouns, I think it's it's a sign of respect and it makes space for those who are gender nonconforming. It's not for people like me or Nicole who are gender conforming, right? It's just to show that little bit of respect that you care enough to recognize that person with the words you are choosing to use. On a similar note about language, pattern designers should consider removing the concept of gender from their patterns. Again, Amelia of Amelia Chanuno has a Seamwork article series where they go into this in more detail than what we can do in this podcast. So check out the link to the articles in our show notes. And when I say remove the concept of gender from patterns, I mean pattern designers should consider just bucketing patterns with labels other than men's patterns and women's patterns. Like women are not the only ones who can wear a dress, for instance. In fact, dresses and skirts and similar garments have been gender neutral throughout history and all over the world. Low kilts. And in Asia, what about the longi worn by men in Burma to up to today? And for those who are not in the know, the longi is a long piece of uncut fabric, not unlike a sarong, that can be twisted and tucked in many ways to form an ankle length skirt that wraps around someone's lower body. So there's also just many Asian traditional garments worn by men that would be considered a dress or a skirt by modern standards. And the idea that only women can wear dresses or skirts is a very recent phenomenon, like within the last 150 years or so. Frankly, it's also just a very westernized point of view. And a suggestion that we read in Amelia's Seamwork articles is to consider using labels that just describe the blocks that the garment was built upon, such as basic flat for what we may call menswear right now, rather than using gender labels. And another thing pattern designers can strive for is providing extensive guidance when it comes to fitting their patterns on a wide range of bodies. So we're not pattern drafting experts here, but I wouldn't think it's unreasonable to say that it's difficult to create patterns that will fit every body out there. So this is a great stopgap that we saw show up a few times in our research. There are already many sew-alongs and other blog posts created by pattern designers that will teach you how to adjust pants for knock knees or adjust tops using a full bust adjustment. And these are typically centered around cisgender bodies. So it's simply a matter of increasing your scope when you provide fitting guidance. It's undoubtedly more work and an investment on the pattern designer's part, but just think about those markets that you're not tapping into right now. Once you remove the gender labels from sewing patterns and also teach everyone, including gender non-conforming folks, how to fit your patterns to their bodies, wouldn't that be something exciting to see? And I do want to talk about size-inclusive patterns briefly before we move on. In our research for this episode, many guides suggested that gender nonconforming folks should start off using women's wear, quote-unquote, women's wear patterns and grade the pattern from there, especially since there are more sizes to encompass a larger range of bodies. However, these patterns tend to be centered around cisgender female bodies and tend to lean heavily on the quote-unquote feminine side. So hopefully, listeners, you understand, we can understand why the current status quo just isn't quite good enough. Right. And as we said before, I think we've seen a lot of improvement over the last two, three years in the sewing community, but there's still a long way to go. Most gender expansive patterns that I've seen out there are for t-shirts, pullovers, and jackets, you know, basics. And they're almost always drafted using menswear straight blocks. And 
Basics are necessary, of course. That's why they're called basics. We all have to wear something. But limiting gender expansiveness to menswear blocks and large kind of shapeless garments just doesn't really make any sense. Gender non-conforming sewists to preserve fun, stylish garments that fit. As Koss will point out in their interview later in this episode, non-binary does not equal androgyny, right? Give me more men wearing gathered maxi dresses and frills and women wearing boxers regardless of sex, gender, and orientation. Like, I'm thinking of JVN and their outfits. Uh, JVN, Jonathan Van Ness of the Queer Eye series, like if you don't know of them, um, has great, great outfits and dresses. Like some of these dresses, like I want to make a dupe. And in the future, like I hope that pattern designers take this to heart and truly try to create more of these inclusive designs and represent more of these people who want to wear their designs on their actual photography and patterns. At the same time, I'm still disappointed and pretty sad that the exclusivity of ready-to-wear is what has driven this need. Like, don't get me wrong, I love seeing the diversity of gender expression in the sewing community, but I wish a lot of it wasn't rooted in the experience of, you know, having, not being able to find something from ready-to-wear that is inclusive. And so then having to turn to making your own clothes and, and turn to the sewing community only to find that the home sewing industry and community is also somewhat lacking in inclusivity too. Yeah, ditto to everything you said, Ada. And the sewing community often ends up being the place where folks go when the ready-to-wear world excludes them. And it is nice to be able to have the sewing community, but you know, it does need to be more inclusive. And I agree, gender expansiveness should should be mainstream. Shouldn't just be the sewing community. Um, you know, ready-to-wear should get it together as well. <laughs> But before we wrap up with the educational portion of today's episode, I'd like to leave you with a couple people of Asian descent who are gender non-conforming that you should follow. Don't forget to support these educators and activists in any way you can if you benefit from their work. Alok goes by they, them pronouns and is Indian American. They are a writer, performer, and public speaker, and the creator behind a movement to de-gender fashion and beauty industries. They are the author of the book, Beyond the Gender Binary, which you can grab a copy directly off their website, alokvmenon.com. That is A-L-O-K-V-M-E-N-O-N.com. Additionally, Alok posts a lot of educational content on their Instagram. That's at alokvmenon, A-L-O-K-V-M-E-N-O-N. Then there's Skylar Baylar. Skylar uses he, him pronouns, is of Korean descent, and is the first ever transgender athlete on an NCAA, that's National Collegiate Athletic Association, swim team. He is also an inspirational speaker and an inclusion advocate. While Skylar predominantly focuses on coaching trans men, his work is very intersectional and he posts a lot of educational content on being transgender and gender nonconforming on his Instagram. That's at Pink Manta Ray, uh, P-I-N-K-M-A-N-T-A-R-A-Y. There's also a ton of useful information up on his website, pinkmantaray.com. Lastly, I also want to highlight Meg Lee, who is an artist and activist. Meg goes by they, them pronouns, and you may have already seen their art on apparel worn by many trans rights advocates and allies, most notably the Protect Trans Kids Tees and Crewnecks. Through their artwork, Meg educates others, challenges societal norms, 
and shares their journey to becoming their more authentic self. Check out their content on Instagram at Meg E. Miko Art. That's M-E-G-E-M-I-K-O-A-R-T. Or on their website, MegEmikoArt.com. So Nicole and I are cisgender. And so the collective decided that instead of us talking about things we don't personally live through, we would instead feature a few guests in the episode who could speak to the topic far better than we could. So first up, we have Tookie Martin, a fellow sewist of Asian descent who is non-binary and goes by at TookMade on Instagram. That's T-E-U-K-M-A-D-E. Hi, Tookie. Hi. Could you tell us a bit about yourself, including what your pronouns are? Sure. So as you mentioned, my name is Tookie. My pronouns are they, them. I am a Korean adoptee. I'm a currently a doctoral student at Syracuse University um, in special education and disability studies. I identify as disabled, neurodivergent, mad, fat, queer, and non-binary. And I think that's, that's a good start. <laughs> <laughs> that was a lot of descriptors. So I'm curious, what would you want the sewing community to know about who you are and your identity as you shared it? So I think number one is just um, that I'm like, I'm one person, right? Like I'm one non-binary person and there is no one way to be non-binary. There's no wrong way to be non-binary and non-binary can look like anything. I think there's a lot of pressure on folks who are non-binary to look like non-binary enough, whatever that means. And, that like androgynous look. Right. And it, and particularly as someone who is fat, like, you know, I, it's harder for me to, to find, first of all, to find clothes that would even allow me to do that. And it's also not how I want to exist in my body. Like that's not how I feel comfortable. So I definitely, you know, I think there are folks who fall into that category and I'm not one of them. And so um, just remembering that like all all non-binary folks are valid. I love that. And you mentioned that walking into a store, it would be difficult to find clothing that you would want to wear or that accurately represents who you are. So I'm curious, is that how you got started into sewing? Like how, how did you even come to sewing? How did at took made start? So my mom, my um, adoptive mother, actually taught me how to use her sewing machine when I was about nine years old. So I was just always really curious about making things and 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 art and stuff like that. You know, for they did my uh, like hundred day birthday first birthday party as a Korean kid, where I had to you know find, like touch different things, and I picked up um, like a spool of thread and a paintbrush. So <gasps> I've always sort of had this like creative, artsy part of my life. And so, yeah, so I learned how to sew when I was nine on the sewing machine. It was not very good. And I, <laughs> and I definitely, I didn't learn like a lot of the technical stuff. So like I could follow a pattern, but I didn't really understand what I was doing. And I didn't really understand a lot of like the nuances around different kinds of fabric and like stretch and nap and all that stuff. And so all of that, I didn't really learn until, I don't know, like fast forward, maybe like five years ago or so when I got introduced to the world of like PDF patterns and like sewing because for a long time I couldn't sew from patterns because they you know a lot of the big companies don't make stuff that goes into like the larger size ranges and I also didn't understand enough about making adjustments and grading um, for my own for myself because I am super short and I have really really (laughs) short legs 
um, and very, shall we say, like mountain dwelling, kimchi squatting kind of calves and thighs. So it's it's just not like, you know, pants are a nightmare. Um, so I mean, pants so then, are a nightmare to sew anyway. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. They really are. But yeah, so I, I came to PDF sewing, I guess, about PDF patterns about like five years ago. And that's when I started to really learn a lot more about sewing. But before then, I just did a lot of garment reconstruction. I was doing burlesque in Seattle for a while. And so I would do a lot of like thrifting and going to like Ross and finding um, components and then taking them apart and putting them back together and adding like sequins and trims and things. So I did a lot more of the reconstruction for a time period. And then now I'm a little bit more towards like following patterns. Interesting. I love, I love that you learned and then you had like a hiatus, let's call it like a break. (laughs) And then PDF patterns, voila, here we are five years later. Um, Is there anything that you're currently working on that you would like to share with us? Yeah, actually, this is a really interesting time for me as a sewist. As you know, may or may not have noticed we've been in this pandemic for a couple of years. And so, (laughs) you know, um, I started my doc program while I was during the pandemic. And so I feel like now that we're kind of moving towards stuff is in person, I'm getting ready to go to my first big conference where I'm presenting I'm working on like my professional wardrobe right now and that's really different for me than what I typically have been sewing which is like tank tops and like fun (laughs) prints and stuff like that like so kind of figuring out even what my professional wardrobe identity like is and then figuring out how to make that so right now I have working on like a blazer pattern in this fun it's from Joann's whatever I love it it's like it's kind of like acid washy denim cool you know so that's really fun it's like a rayon I'm also working on a vest uh, I'm working on like some other sorts of layers you know in like linens and things I'm just playing with materials and really figuring out what I like and that's a lot more woven than I like than I normally work with I'm much more of a knit person so um it's interesting interesting so if I'm getting it right you personally pre- having to go out in the world with this, you know, you're going to be a doctor. <laughs> it's the best way I can put it. Um, trying to present like a professional, professional version of Tookie, gravitated towards knits, tank top. It's sounding like soft fabrics and prints and, and fun colors, maybe. Yeah, and I mean, now, I was teaching like in an inclusive pre-K. So, you know, really different vibe. Yeah, you don't want to wear a nice white linen shirt to that. <laughs> No, no, it's different vibes for sure. Sounds, yeah, different vibes. Sounds like a white linen shirt there would be asking for something to happen. <laughs> so now you're figuring it out. What has that process of figuring out what does like quote unquote professional wardrobe look like for you? Like, have you used any references anywhere? Are there certain pattern designers or patterns that you've been looking towards more than others? So I think, I feel like I'm not alone in this in terms of I've heard from like other folks, particularly like gender non-conforming, non-binary folks. Animal Crossing is like in dressing yourself up and like putting together little outfits was sort of like a really great way to get an idea of like, oh, I might like to try that sometime. Or, oh, I wonder (laughs) if I could find those pieces in real life. Um, And so I think that 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 sort of started to be like something I was playing with because we, we got it, you know, during the pandemic. And so that was something I was, playing with and getting just some ideas I think and even now I think it's still very much in that phase of like we're gonna see what happens when I do this definitely 
folks on Instagram. So I started the, a couple of years ago, I started the hashtags, um, so non-binary. And so kind of like going through and seeing what their folks are doing. Big shout out to uh, Rare Device, who has been posting little videos of what they were to teach. And I'm always like, oh, okay, what are these pieces? Because like, I like how this layering is going. And, you know, we have different body types and I wear things differently on myself. Like I don't like a high waisted or anything, but definitely looking at patterns there. Like I'm working on a Belmore jacket by Muno and Broad. And that definitely came from like seeing others, people's being like, oh, okay okay, I can make that work, you know? I love that jacket. The goal is to make it for somebody. I haven't figured out who. But thank you for sharing all those patterns. And Animal Crossing, honestly, would not have been my first, (laughs) like, thought. But that makes a lot of sense. Duh. Um, So we will have links to Animal Crossing for anyone who doesn't know. It's a video game. (laughs) And all of the patterns (laughs) that Chucky mentioned in our show notes, as usual. I'm curious, since you did mention you're a Korean adoptee, and it sounds like your parents threw you your 100-day party, which is a traditional, it's a Korean tradition. When the baby reaches 100 days, around three months, they put a bunch of uh, symbolic things in front of the baby and see what it grabs for. And that's supposed to be like a a predictor, I guess, (laughs) of what you're going to be good at. And I guess I'm curious if you're open to sharing with us, like, are there any ways and or what other ways does your heritage in- intersect with your sewing practice that maybe we haven't covered already, if it does intersect with it at all? Yeah, no, actually, it, it does in really big ways. So I would say for a lot of my early figuring out my gender identity and sort of how I wanted to present myself, um, so my expression, I drew a lot from K-pop. And I was totally this. I still describe myself, like I still identify as a flower boy. Um, and I, that was sort of my whole image, you know, really came from that. And when I was doing burlesque, it was, you know, I was a lot more out there, I think, in terms of my style, definitely not presenting at an academic conference professional sort of thing. So I've been trying to figure out how do I maintain that influence in the sort of my now maybe elevated wardrobe that I'm working on. And at the same time, I'm also interested in integrating other aspects of Korean culture that I'm, you know, learning about kind of at a distance. Certainly, I want to try to do like modern, modern hanbok kind of take. And I'm always sort of looking for like ways to make that happen and ways that'll work for me. And I, I still haven't totally sorted it out because I think it's just, it's a tricky thing. Kind of, do I look for a pattern that like, approximates what I'm looking for and maybe add some detailing, you know, versus do I just self-draft things like that? And then also adding embroidery, even like Nordege, like things like that. So I'm definitely trying to do it. And as I as I build up this sort of ideal wardrobe, like those are elements that are totally there. I think the reality of making that happen is certainly more complicated. <laughs> yeah. I mean it takes time to make anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, for one, am very excited to see when you make any of those happen in reality on your Instagram. And so before we wrap up for today, are there any Asian sewists who are gender non-conforming that you would like to bring to our attention that our followers and listeners should also follow, including you? <laughs> Definitely Sky Kubaku with uh, Rebirth Garments is this really amazing project that they've done 
Um, it's a it's a clothing line that revolves around queer, trans, and disabled bodies, um, and what that kind of fashion can look like as a form of like really like radical visibility. And so I think that their work is amazing, and definitely check them out. And then um, someone who I have found through Instagram is at sounds like you you why you who is another asian sewist who i believe is also non-binary um who posts some really great things great content as well that is amazing we will have links to both of those accounts on our show notes and that's all the questions i have for you today tookie thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us and sharing a little bit about you with all of our listeners once again you can find tookie on instagram at Tookmade, that's T-E-U-K-M-A-D-E. Tookie also sells stickers and pins on Etsy. So you can find their store at tookmade.etsy.com. So T-E-U-K-M-A-D-E dot Etsy.com. Get on it. Thank you so much for having me. The next guest on today's agenda is Koss, who is with or without ice on Instagram. We actually mentioned Koss in a past episode when they messaged us about the problematic nature of merchant and mills and now Koss is part of our collective. They wear many hats and welcome. Thanks. Koss, could you tell us a bit about yourself and introduce yourself to our listeners, including what your pronouns are? Um, sure. Whew. How, do, how do I introduce myself? Uh, so my name is Koss. My pronouns are they, them. I guess it depends. I, I, prefer, I prefer they, them. Some people still call me she, which... For some people, it's fine, but for most people, I prefer they, them. My parents are Cambodian, so I am of Khmer descent, and I was born and raised in France. I lived in the U.S. for a little bit in Boston, where I met my partner, and now we both live in Temakimakoro at Aotearoa, which is Auckland, New Zealand. And what do you want the sewing community to know about your identity? I guess... I don't, so I am non-binary and I don't need to protest this because I am non-binary because to me, my gender doesn't matter. Like I don't care to participate in the binary and I will talk about being non-binary and I will be very transparent about it. It's also very new to me. So like we're kind of like we're learning together, but I guess what I want the sewing community to know about, not really about my identity, but about non-binary people in general, is that we're here. So it really annoys me when um, parent designers or like organizer from like Frogtails events and stuff like this start their email by saying, hi, ladies, or, or an event showing an image with like all thin people in dresses or stuff like this. What I wish the sewing community would do is be more mindful, obviously be more inclusive, but also be more mindful of this because there's not just non-binary people like me. There's also men who sew and they also, we have to live with the bias that sewing is historically for women, but there's all of us here and yeah, I wish the sewing community would be more mindful of that. Is there anything unique you think about the intersection of being Asian and being non-binary that you would want to share? There's not really. And also the fact is that I only know me 
who's Asian and non-binary. I don't, I don't have like the other non-binary friends I have through Instagram are not Asian. So I have trouble to find the intersection of it. I would say as a person of color with very traditional parents, it's really hard to explain what that is. Like when I came out to my parents, I said, hey, I'm non-binary and I'm also bi. I'm, I think I'm, I'm pansexual, not bi, but like it's easier for my parents to understand what bi is. And I think they kind of like mix the two. Like for them, it just means the same thing. And it's hard enough for them to wrap around their head over the fact that like my sexuality is different than what they thought it was. And they've been kind of quiet about it. So I guess it means it's okay. <laughs> but yeah, like telling them about, about gender, it's, it's, really, it's really difficult. I consider that I'm trans because I'm not cis, but I am not a person who transitioned. Like I was born AFAB and I don't feel like I'm a man or whatever. I'm just non-binary. So to me, my gender and my presentation don't matter. Like that's why I'm non-binary. I think it's because I don't want to participate in like the traditional gender role. I think it's ridiculous and I never felt really like I fit in any boxes, which is really different for people who transitioned for them. Their gender and their presentation is really important because I think for them, it's who they are on the inside and they can show it on the outside. And that's amazing, I think, but it's, it's not something I relate with. So because for me, gender and presentation is not that important, I really like seeing garments that are both worn by men and women. So obviously in Western culture, both men and women wear pants now. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I put emphasis on now. But for example, when I see my parents' traditional garment, which they don't wear in France because in France they arrived and they just assimilated and they made us assimilate. So like they don't wear this outside or even home. But when we have weddings or stuff like this, I can see them wear traditional garments. And I really, I get a lot of pleasure to see that some garments are worn by both genders because my culture is also very, very gendered. Like, I don't know another language that does that, but for example, if you're female or male, you don't answer yes the same way. In French, everything is gendered. Like if I'm saying I'm pretty or I'm happy, you can hear my gender in like the adjective. I feel very safe in English because I don't do that. I just say I, and then it's just me. It's not gendered, it's just me. But in French, I don't even know how to speak in French being myself because <laughs> I have to choose. And my culture is even, it's even more than that. It's even just the fact of saying, yes, you have to choose kind of. So I have not lived there. And if you do, please tell me. But I know that I have some friends who are Khmer and who are gay. And when they are spoken to, they use the female way of saying yes. And for my mom, it's kind of like a way of seeing if someone is gay. Like it's just seeing if someone is not conforming. It's just they use the other language. But I'm really happy when I see a garment that are that are worn by both genders because 
for a culture that is like really into the binary, it makes me really happy that I'm like, oh, I was right this whole time. Clothes are not gendered. Like it's been done <laughs> by a lot of people, actually. Yeah, I remember seeing in the news a few months ago that there was like this big debate, I guess that's probably the best way to put it on gender neutral pronouns in French. And mm. the the new development of EL or IEL of being gender neutral and kind of like giving it some sort of option, because literally, like you said, everything you conjugate would give an indication or is gendered. And I don't recall there being any resolution to that. I think it's still like relatively new in the dialogue, at least. But yeah, I think it's it's interesting, even generationally looking like your parents saying that your parents moved and immigrated and then wanted to assimilate as fast as possible. And now that's like kind of how your mom tells is, is interesting to kind of wrap your head around, I think, culturally and generationally. Yeah. So in French, and I think it's even more, I mean, I don't, I haven't been living in France for years now. So also if you live in France, please tell me. <laughs> I think it's even more developed in Canada because Northern America is more open to these kind of questions than good old Europe. But uh, there's um, inclusive language that exists and you will use dots before putting an E that is the mark of femininity or you will use both kind of like a mix mash of the um, masculine and the feminine in the same word. So the words are way longer. It's inclusive. But I think it's really, it's like, I don't mind doing that when I'm writing. And I try to do that when I'm doing it in French. But I think it's really tedious when you speak. I have a friend who's, it's funny because she's Kiwi, she's from New Zealand, but she lives in France and I'm French and I live here. So like we talk about that all the time. (laughs) And she also, she's also Maori. So we also talk about being people of color in white countries. Um, she was telling me that she had a seminar through her work that was kind of like teaching them like some adjectives or stuff that are neutral that have no, so like technically they are either masculine, either feminine, but they sound the same. So I think it's a good way to do it. Like, uh, I mean, all the ways are a good way to do it, but this is an easy way to do it. Like, a few days ago, I talked, it was a trans visibility day and I came out on Instagram um, a while ago, but like, obviously not everybody is like on my profile page every day. So like some, some of my friends haven't even noticed. And so for that day, I was like, okay, just ask me a question. It's kind of like ask a trans person on Reddit or whatever. And one of my friends from like uni from when, when we were 18 wrote me and she was like, oh my God, like. I support you in everything you're doing. You're so pretty, blah, blah. And I was like, in French, and I was like, well, like, <laughs> not really like the word pretty. It's it's not really, like, it kind of like makes my skin crawl. And and then he just replied and he said, I think you're a wonderful person. And it was very cute because he was trying so hard. But yeah, I think it's a way to do it. Like, you can just use the word person more or you can just use words that sound the same in both vendor or stuff like that. I know that for my part, I'm trying to be more mindful about using more inclusive language. This might sound silly, but I've adopted y'all. I do that too. (laughs) 
anywhere where anyone says y'all, but um, that's just kind of an easy way for me, like uh, one way for me, for me to feel like I am using language that honors everyone. And I want to back up to something that you said that really resonated with me a little bit earlier about clothing, not having gender. It's so apparent to me now. I'm like, I mean, only people have genders, but you know, it's so ingrained that things have genders. And I felt like when that was put forth in front of me, like clothing doesn't have a gender. It was like a light bulb. Of course it doesn't. Um, and, you know, clothing is about expression and, you know, we are the sewist collective and I know that you sew. So I'd love to turn a little bit toward uh, your sewing practice and, and if and how your gender identity informs that. But let's start with just how did you start sewing? Who did you learn from? How did you learn? So my mom sewed when I was really young, like when I was maybe between zero and three years old. She sewed and I have uh, memories of like going to like the market and touching fabrics and stuff like this. She made us dresses. She made us gem pants. Like I used to see her at the sewing machine or like, or like, you know, the, um, my mom didn't have like a sewing tin, but she had like a, a little sewing box and I loved, and it was for some reason, it was under the coffee table at all time. It's not like my mom was sewing all the time, but it was there. <laughs> and so as a kid, I would always go in it because sometimes she would be, when she would hem pants, she would put like the scrub in there. So you would have like, just like kind of like rings of pants in there. And I would kind of like go and look at them and like touch them and stuff. Like, especially I, I loved velvets when I was a kid. I still do whenever, like, I don't know, my mom was hemming corduroy pants it would make me really happy to like just touch that and so I think I probably asked her when I was a kid to be like mom like uh show me how you how you sew and stuff and she taught me hand stitching but like she taught me probably just to like entertain me she taught me hand stitching and I like I don't know made a cushion for like my doll or whatever but I remember really liking it and I remember really liking just like putting the thread through the needle and stuff like this. And I have memories of me years later, just like being with friends at home and being kind of bored and then being like, what do we do? You know how when you're kids, you always need to be doing something. You always need an activity. And I would teach them how to sew. Like I would teach them how to like put buttons on scraps and like just like put the thread through the needle and double the the threads, knot it and stuff like that. Like I have memories of that. And, but I never used the, the sewing machine. Like I saw my mom do it, but I never used the sewing machine. And my grandma was making a lot of crochet when I was a kid. So she taught me as well for me to leave her alone. But, <laughs> but I forgot since then. So, so yeah, I always kind of like knew how to do it without really doing it. And then when I was a teen, I was DIYing a lot. Like, I don't know, buying secondhand skirts, making them shorter or adding ruffles or like appliquing lace or whatever. And when I was in architecture school, so when I was 19, I kept sending like DIY tutorial to a friend who I knew sewed dresses. And one time she was like, okay, you have to stop. Like, we're going to buy fabric and I'm going to teach you how to sew. You can't be just cutting into skirts and stuff all the time. Like, you need to start from the beginning. And she taught me. So I went to her place and she 
she taught me again how to like thread the sewing machine because I, I didn't remember from what my mom had taught me a while ago. And she told me how to use a pattern. And that was mind blowing to me because my mom never did that. Like she just like rubbed off clothes. Like she would just like put some a pair of my pants on the floor and just cut fabric around it and stuff like this. So like that was mind blowing to me how to use a pattern. And it was like a bird of pattern. So it was like so hard, but she <laughs> taught me through it. And yeah, and since then I have I have sewed a little bit, but it's really when I arrived in New Zealand three years ago that I started sewing a lot because I didn't have a job and I kind of was bored. Like I didn't know anyone and I didn't, and didn't have a job. So I just sewed every day, all day. And now I'm really confident in my sewing because for like almost two years, I sewed every day. That's awesome. I think many of us wish we had that much time to sew. <laughs> I'm curious, you know that we start every episode talking about what we're sewing. So can you tell us about what you're currently sewing? So I moved to Auckland last August. So like, I don't know, nine months ago or something. And in like two weeks after that, we went into lockdown because Omicron has arrived to New Zealand. And since then, I haven't really been back to the office. Like I've been back for like a while. I went twice a week and then I stopped again because there was another wave of Omicron, whatever. So I haven't been back at the office too much. So I've been still sewing, not as much as before, but quite a bit, maybe every two or three days. And so I have a lot of clothes now <laughs> because I've been home so long. But my sister, um, she doesn't sew. I think I'm, I'm kind of like trying to lure her to the dark side, but she doesn't sew yet. And she's really into the 50s aesthetic. Like I would, I would say like the 20s to the 60s aesthetic. And so she goes to like pinup contests and stuff like that. And one time she was like, oh, can you, can you sew me a tiki dress? Which is like the history is kind of not great. It's like about all of this ex exotism of Hawaii for Americans. But she really liked the aesthetic and she was like, but I don't want to ask you because I know it's a lot of work. And I was like, no, it's fine for you. I'll, I'll sew anything. Like I'm really happy to sew you anything because she's always so grateful when she wears it and she will just tell everyone that I made it for her and stuff like that. I won't do, I won't sew for anyone except my sister and my partner. <laughs> and so I'm making that and she was like, oh, I saw that Gertie had a pattern. And I was like, no, 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 I am not making anything by Gertie. Like I have, I have a blacklist of pattern designers and Gertie and Merchant and Mills are on it. <laughs> uh, so I am heavily hacking Rose Cafe Bussier dress to look like the images she sent me. And it's really complicated because we have roughly the same measurement, except in the bust, she has like way more cups than I have, but roughly everywhere else is the same and we're also the same height. So I assume that like all busts and stuff are the same length since we're sisters and all, but I mean, maybe not. So what I'm trying to do is that gallery by Perry, I think, talked about this. I don't know if it was a sewing chat or if it was the episode, but 
or if or if we're going to talk about this in the zero waste episode but she had in her sari blouses she has really big seam allowances so that you can modify if you gain weight if you lose weight if you lend your blouse to someone else so i'm doing this for her so that she can wear it as long as she wants like i added an inch of seam allowance all around so it's like so all around it's like it's what 10 10 centimeters that i'm adding in circumference if she needs to add stuff so yeah i'm trying to make it kind of like flexible for her size but that's not how a pattern is made so i'm just like really quickly reading through instruction and just like hacking the heck out of the (laughs) out of the pattern to make it flexible and also how she wants it to look like which is really fun because now i have a lot of clothes and i have a lot of stuff I know how to do, like, obviously I'm not like a seamstress or tailor or anything, but there's a lot of stuff that I know how to do now, but I'm always looking for new things to learn. So it's really nice to be doing something for her because it's not really something I would wear. So it's not something I would do for myself. And also the fact that I need to be hacking it is interesting to me. And the fact that I need to make it flexible for weight for weight fluctuation is also very interesting to me. So yeah, I'm doing this for now. It's kind of kicking my butt. <laughs> I saw your post. I, it was a post or a story or something. I've been lurking on Instagram. Um, <laughs> but I saw the um, the seam allowances and it, it reminded me of Gowrie's discussion. I would think it was it was the sorry episode uh, last season. In your, if you said it was a story, you said you, it kind of, makes you interested in quilting you think you'll get into quilting am I wrong I think you said that yeah yeah yeah. I did say that because so like the Rose Cafe Bussier the all of the bodice is lined like all of it the cups and the the bodice like everything is is interfaced and then all of it is lined so in that seam allowance I have like five row stitches uh, in the seam allowance and it's so a layer, a layer of lining, and then a layer of interface fabric, and then the reverse layer interface fabric and the lining. So it's kind of thick. And so the stitching is doing this beautiful kind of like digging into the fabric and then it's kind of like bubbly and then it, it's digging again. And I find it really beautiful. And I like, um, I like things that are tactile like this. So yeah, I've been thinking of getting into quilting for a while now. Like I've been saving scraps and stuff. I don't want to get into quilting and like go and buy in quilting fabric. Like I think if I want to go into quilting, it's to recycle my fabrics from garment sewing. But the problem I have is that what I love sewing for is that I'm making an object with a purpose. And with quilting, what doesn't appeal to me is that I don't want to make just a bedspread or the hanging like it doesn't really appeal to me so maybe I'll go into quilting by just like quilting fabric and then <laughs> making it into a garment that's that's how I started I, I felt the same way about quilting Ada and I know we've talked about this it's like I can appreciate the craft for what it is but I don't seem I don't know what I would do with all the all the quilts I, I say that but then in the last month or so I all of a sudden decided I wanted to make a quilt. <laughs> so I've just been cutting squares and it, they might not ever turn into a quilt. Maybe it'll turn into a bag or a jacket or something, but 
I, I definitely, I definitely feel you on that. Before we wrap up for today, are there any other sewists who are gender nonconforming that you would like to bring to our attention and to our listeners' attention? So as I said earlier, if you're Asian and trans, please add me on Instagram. I want to talk to you. <laughs> I, I, I don't know any, actually. Um, so yeah, please, please be my friend. Um, but for gender nonconforming, obviously, Emilia Tununo is my biggest inspiration. <laughs> they really helped me in my journey. They really helped me realize who I was. And, and they're a, de- a dear friend. We talk, we talk on, the, on Instagram sometimes, and it's really nice. But yeah, except for that, just follow non-binary people on Instagram that are fashion influencer or activists or anything. Like, obviously, it doesn't just stop to sewing. I really love following Emilia. I love their content and and appreciate their their journey and their style. How cool. Yeah. Oh my God. (laughs) So definitely follow them. And I don't know if it's okay for me to share this, but Amelia actually recommended you, Koss, as a guest for us. Mm -hmm. So I hope that warms your heart. And maybe I wasn't supposed to say that. I don't know. Um, It really shows (laughs) the character of your relationship. So thank you for recommending them to us as well. And listeners, if there are other gender non-conforming sewists that you want to share with us, let us know and we'll be sure to follow them and uh, add their profile to our show notes. And thank you so much, Koss, for answering all of our questions and also sharing your story with all of our listeners. Koss is on Instagram under with or without ice. They also have a sewing blog, letsmakestitches.com. We'll include their blog link in our show notes. Thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode of the Asian Sewist Collective podcast. If you like our show, please consider supporting us on Coffee. Your financial support helps us with overhead expenses and allows us to give back to our all-volunteer team. You can make a monthly or one-time donation at ko-fi.com slash Asian Sewist Collective. You can find this link in our show notes, on our website, and on our Instagram account. Check us out on Instagram at Asian Sewist Collective. That's one word, Asian Sewist Collective. You can also help us out by spreading the word and telling your friends. We would appreciate it if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All of the links and resources mentioned in today's episode will be in the show notes on our website. That's asiansewistcollective.com. And we'd love to hear from you. Email us with your questions, comments, or even voice messages if you want to be featured on future episodes at asiansewistcollective at gmail.com. This episode was brought to you by your co-hosts, Ada Chen and Nicole Angeline. This episode was researched by Mariko Abed. Produced by Mariko Abed. And edited by Shailin Joy. And Henry Wong. Thank you so much to the other members of our collective who made this week's episode a reality. This is the Asian Sewist Collective Podcast, and we'll see you next week.